What does it mean to have to tell a story through the untelling of another? When you think of science in the 17th century, who comes to mind? It may not be Hassan al-Yusi, a Muslim scholar working in a Sufi lodge, or Zawiya, in a rural part of southern Morocco. These Sufi lodges, or Zawaya, and the scholars who animated them are the refreshing focus of a new book by Justin Stearns. Revealed Sciences, the Natural Sciences in Islam in 17th century Morocco. In this episode, we dive into the book with Justin. First, he takes us into the daily lives of Zawiya scholars in early modern Morocco, a period when these Sufi lodges sustained their rigorous curricula in the absence of a central state. In the second half of the episode, we will discuss the implications of their story for the history of science. Alusi was Amazigh, the name for indigenous people in North Africa, sometimes also called Berber. Alusi had an interesting new take on the old division between disciplines of knowledge in the Islamic world, Ulum Akliya and Ulum Nakliya the so-called rational sciences and transmitted sciences. The former often included logic, mathematics, and astronomy, and other sciences with roots in antiquity, while the latter centered interpretations of the Qur'an, hadith, and the legal tradition. But as Justin shows, these categories were more fluid than you'd expect, and sometimes more familiar, too. That's how I say at the at the end of the book, just to anticipate the ending, that the book fails. The book fails in numerous ways, and it fails. And and the part where I don't have to be hard on myself is when I say that it fails because of the immaturity of the field, right? Because the field just is not ready yet to make certain claims that it would like to make. Um, I mean, I really want to ask you about astrology <laughs> and if you're into astrology yourself you know uh, <laughs> if there's any like actual interest in the occult sciences in a more practical sense well that's a good question unfortunately not the more that i looked into the issue of science and the more that i became you know was trying to think through the occult as a counter category by which things were defined and redefined and redeployed the more interested i really became in it I have to say, I've, I've become envious of people who do practice these arts in many ways. I mean, and I just... You don't even know your sign, Justin? <laughs> I, well, no, I'm a, I'm a Libra, obviously. I'm extremely well-balanced and, obviously. you know, yeah, I got my sign. I got my sign, yeah. But that's about as far as it goes. <laughs> gotcha. You <know>? Gotcha. <laughs> I'm Shireen Hamza. I'm Taylor Moore. Welcome to the Ottoman History Podcast. You know, why Morocco? Why why the 17th century? And and 
Well, as as we can see from other work, including that, for example, of Khaled Roy, have, there's a lot going on in Morocco in the 17th century to the extent that it can be measured by its impact on what happens in the Mashrik or in Egypt, which usually and continued has kind of pride of place in our intellectual history when we look at, at the Islamic hate world. Um, but there's also a lot of other th reasons why I got became very quickly fascinated with Morocco. From earlier, I've there was one specific scholar, Al-Hassan Al-Yusi, who lived in Morocco during this time period. And when I became interested in him when I was thinking about plague and his own opinions about plague. But the closer I looked at Yusi, I also realized that there were a number of institutional changes happening in Morocco in the 16th and 17th centuries, which allowed us to question some of our broader narratives. And one of those was that we have a period here, a transition between two different dynasties. So there are, these are the Sharifian dynasties, dynasties which claim legitimacy by linking themselves genealogically back to the prophet. The Saadi dynasty arises in the 16th century and unites Morocco in this sense after a series of Amazigh or Berber dynasties had previously been ruling over Morocco. And the Saudi dynasty is in many ways quite successful, is able to defeat European powers and also to launch its own kind of imperial ambitions across the Sahara down into West Africa. But it collapses at the beginning of the 17th century with Ahmed al-Mansur's death in 1603. And with it, and this is perhaps is for comparativists is interesting. In the same century, of course, that England is falling apart politically, this is also happening in Morocco. And it, the dynasty falls apart with Ahmed al-Mansur's death, and it won't be reconstituted under a strong central ruler for almost another 70 years. And the story that I tell takes place in that 70 years of comparative political uncertainty with a split country that is fighting externally against the kind of the colonial powers of the Spanish and the Portuguese in the north and along the, the Atlantic coast and internally amongst these, the sons of Ahmed al-Mansur, but then more and more these Amazigh or Berber Sufi lodges, which are controlling the Middle Atlas and the anti-Atlas in the South. And so one of the interesting things here is, look at all of the intellectual stuff that's happening with the natural sciences during a time period when there is no central state. So this presupposes that there are other forms of funding, like who is paying these guys' bills? Where is that coming from, right? And so in part, it's coming from the Sufi lodges are run by the kind of trade routes that you're getting with, you know, the aforementioned um, you trade with West Africa in terms of gold and slaves. That's part of it. And part of it, it's, it just has to do with the ability to, um, you know, get excess value out of grazing your herds in the Middle Atlas in part of that. And in part, these, these, these Sufi lodges become not just economic and military entities and, and undertake exploits. And, and the Dilet Lodge, this lodge in the Middle Atlas, where you see has most of his, his, spends most of his time, but also where a lot of the, like his teacher, Al-Miriti, who features prominently in chapter four as, you know, a, a scholar of, of alchemy and astronomy. And um, he, he teaches at the Sufi Lodge. So we have these rural spaces, which are becoming intellectual hubs and centers. And so I found that that was fascinating to me, that, that kind of reconstitutes our understanding. And if you work on Morocco, you think of Fez and Marrakesh and these places is where it's at. That's where the scholars are. And suddenly I'm like, no, you have to go down to Tamgrut in the south and go to the Delet Lodge. And that's where you're going to study if you're going to want to wanna know what's going on, what's cutting edge at that time. And so many of the scholars in the book, they, you know, they never 
they never spend much time in Fez and Marrakesh. And so that was one of this one of the things that I was really interested in. The book was exploring all of this dynamic intellectual production in the natural sciences that's taking place in this politically diffuse landscape. So that drew me to this time period. At the end of the, the century, in the 1670s, the Alawite dynasty will rise up, also coming out of Sijimasa, this desert Saharan town in the south, and then moving north. And the Alawite dynasty will then unite under Moulay Ismail, Rashid, and then Moulay Ismail will unite the Morocco in the shape that it more or less is today, and has stayed since then, right? They're still ruling Morocco. So that's, and it's this intervening period that, that I, I kind of cast as the backdrop as this institutionalized learning that's playing out in urban settings, but also in these rural Sufi lodges, which not, have not traditionally been often discussed in terms of sites of natural science production in the Islamic world. And and I was wondering if you could say more about um, the natural sciences themselves um, or, or science at this time period, right? You make very clear in the book that right. you're mostly going to use sciences in plural and the natural science is a very kind of like particular category. Right, right. Maybe as part of this discussion, we can get into your choice for the title of the book. So one of the, the issues of when we we think about the sciences or think about any form of knowledge is you want to work through sort of local or emic categories. You want to go back and you want to find what people, how they were dividing up their own understanding of knowledge. So one of the things I try to do relatively early on in the book is to get inside the sort of these uh, categorizations or which has a long tradition in, in sort of the Islamic world. And, and we find here in the in the 17th century a number of people doing these these categorizations of knowledge. And I'll you see among them, but but um, others as well. And then we see, so what is natural science? Natural science or natural sciences or the sciences which relate to the physical, right? So they would relate to physical reality as opposed to the mathematical sciences necessarily. Now, admittedly, I blur things from time to time and bring some of the mathematical sciences in. But there is also blurring in terms of the categories that people use, especially between astronomy and astrology, for example, because astronomy technically would be a mathematical science, where astrology would be a natural science because it relates to do with the, the physical um, you know, with the heavens and with the planets and their 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 influence on on the sublunar world. So that's that's that part of it. Now, the title of the book, Revealed Science, comes from the fact that at one point in Al-Yusi's Qanun, um, his his sort of categorizations of knowledge, he sort of looks at previous categorizations of knowledge, and he says, well. Some people have categorized things according to well, what is re- you know what is religiously permitted and what is religiously not permitted, and he goes through and reviews some of these these previous categorizations, including that of a 14th century Grenadian scholar Ibn Juzay, but also that of the 16th century, 15th 16th century Egyptian polymath of Sayuti, and he says these guys, you know, they're they're really kind of off base. They're not they're not getting this straight. When it comes down to it. The types of knowledge that are revealed, and I, I spend some time um, on this word, shari, right? I mean, the, the ones that are, have been revealed for like, with, uh, we have sharia, which is the, you know, the Islamic law in the abstract, not in the embodiment that human beings give to it, but into what they aspire to. This is the revelation from, from God. And so what is shari is what benefits the Muslim community. That is what is revealed science, and it's all of it. So anybody who previously might maybe say it would have broken down the sciences into um, rational, for example, 
and transmitted. This is the Aklia Naklia binary that we, we deal with all the time. He's like, he rejects that. He's just like, that's not, I'm not going to, to, to go into that. I'm just taking that there's, there is revealed knowledge that benefits. And if it benefits, it's kind of, it's a very sort of instrumentalist, functionalist understanding of, of it. But he goes so far, I mean, it's worth stressing here, to say you can study magic. Now, magic is something which is generally kind of a counter category that most Muslim scholars would be like, no, you don't do that. That's not that's a no, no. In fact, there's and there's all. And he's like, no, actually, you need to know some magic so that you can recognize magicians. OK, this is practical knowledge. I don't know. He's not saying that people should go do magic because that involves invoking powers other than the divine. That's a clearly this this guy is, is highly orthodox in that sense, although I don't like the word orthodox, but nonetheless. So but he's saying. You, this we need to know something about this, and that goes to show that he's thinking about knowledge in a different way than is commonly held to be the default. When I presented early versions of this, like lo and behold, like a decade ago, this was a point, a sticking point for some of my audiences that somebody could be making this kind of a claim because, in some ways, it's it's pushing the limits to what some other previous scholars would would deal with. I mean, he also he makes fun of Suyuti. I mean, if anybody who makes fun of Suyuti has a certain level of self-confidence, shall we say. Going back to the institution of the Zawiya, the, um, the, like the situatedness of them in the Atlas and, you know, in this sort of Amazigh uh, context, I would love to know a little bit more about how, how it's relevant that, you know, these scholars are writing in a scholarly Arabic in a multilingual environment. Um, and I think, I think so often throughout the book you're pointing out the limits of you know making them representative of some whole that this is actually one slice of society perhaps you could tell us more about these zawiyas and how um, the ethnic and linguistic makeup of the areas they're in might have affected the history that's a really interesting point i mean they're they're in the sense that we're talking here among the scholars that i discuss in the book of Many of them, and it's not easily discernible in all cases, but many of them come from non-Arab Amazigh backgrounds. So there are people who would have, their first language would not have been Arabic. And yet, there is a striking point in, in the discourses, uh, one of Al-Yusi's later books, in which he, he seems to be almost, I hesitate to say alienated, but it, it comes to me almost that way, because he says, I th he says something along the lines of, I thought that the Arabs were the only people who prized genealogy and that nobody else did. Certainly not my people. But then I went and asked them. And I discovered that, no, 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 we prize genealogy too. And I'm like, wait a second. Why did you have to go and ask them? You are them. You come from them, right? I mean, we learn from Al-Yusi, for example, that his father was illiterate. And he grows up in this small village outside of Sefru, outside of Fez. And his mother dies when he's young, and he asks his father to send him away to study. 
And at some point in his life, he must have taken a turn to have becoming just so utterly Arabized that he occasionally felt distance from um, from his Amazigh background. But he was not alone. I mean, this is an age in which people, scholars from Amazigh backgrounds are are using Arabic. And uh, I take a, a term here from Carla Millet's recent beautiful book um, as a cosmopolitan language. They are reaching into the authority of this language, which is not their mother tongue, and mastering it in order to attain a certain position of power and influence, so much so that Al-Yusi can write works that will then travel the entire Mediterranean, which he would not have been able to do in Amazigh, and to which to reach the point where he is, you know, writing admonishing letters against Mullah Ismail, one of the most powerful leaders in the Muslim world in the 17th century. And so that is what he's able to do with his mastery of, of Arabic. Now, the Zawiya, or I'll back up to say here, Islam is often thought of as an urban religion. We think of it as, as taking place as the law addressing these urban social circumstances, and, and we forget how much intellectually gets produced in outside of urban areas. And that is what is so important here to understanding the Sufi lodges. Now, when did these Sufi lodges come about in Morocco? They start under the Sa'adis in the early 16th century, and we see this proliferation, which is sponsored in part by the Sa'adis, throughout Morocco in the 16th, and they just continue to grow in the 17th century. And in many ways, after the downfall of the Sa'adis, these rural Sufi lodges maintain an intellectual network throughout Morocco and moving into West Africa um, that, that is able to you know, sustain scholarship and students throughout the political collapse that follows of the downfall of the Sa'adis at the beginning of the 17th century. Right. That's one of the things I think which is so striking here. And in doing that, yes, many of the people participating in this process and these forms of knowledge, both spiritual in terms of the different Sufi orders that are, and also in terms of the intellectual transmission of the natural sciences, which we focus on you know, in the book, they're coming from Amazigh backgrounds. They're, they're doing this in a second language for them. Um, but as anybody knows who's been to Morocco today, I mean, the, by the ability to shift back and forth between multiple languages is is something which is only really strange in a certain American context. And most people in most parts of the world are shifting between languages all the time, from prestige languages to more colloquial languages. And that's something which is certainly going on here among the admittedly small, comparatively small literate class of people in the 17th century who are partaking in this conversation. Which, unfortunately, should be also noted or, that this is a a very male, a very masculine environment, that the, the transmission of the natural sciences is taking place almost entirely in a conversation um, by men, for men. And there are uh, one of the, my frustrations in writing this book, in fact, many was trying to find more women, more female voices in this time period that I could bring into this. Now, I'm sure they're there somewhere, but I was not able to find them when I was going through the, the bibliographic literature, for example, because I spend a lot of time going through these tabakat works, where the people, and the tabakat works, of course, have their own agenda and promoting certain kinds of genealogies of knowledge. But nonetheless, it was disappointing not to find more in, in, that, in that way. These zawiyas as, um, as rural centers of, of learning were not exclusively institutions of natural scientific learning, but as you show in the book, included them as a result of the way they were formulated by deeply religious scholars. But if you can tell us a little bit more about 
how and why the natural sciences were taught at um, these Zawaya, that would be wonderful. First of all, these Zawaya, these Sufi lodges, clearly function as a form of social reproduction of the Sufi orders themselves, which have their own economic bases in a variety of places. But when we think about what it gets taught there, First, it's worth acknowledging right off the bat that the natural sciences are not the focus, right? I mean, I tried to go through the genealogical literature to show that between, you know, roughly seven and maybe nine percent of all scholars of the ninth of the 17th century in Morocco were familiar with, had studied one or more of the natural and or mathematical sciences, right? But that is a lot of scholars for that time period. So we're still talking about, you know, easily hundreds, if not maybe a thousand people or more who are very conversant with and who see even those who don't study them, who see them as a, a respectable form of knowledge, which has its own social value. So they have a certain social prestige. Right. But in the Zawaya, one consider that you would go from a traditional kind of beginning of learning, of literacy that you develop in what we would, in, as an, an amaktab or a regional school, maybe in your village, and that you would then end up perhaps at, a, at one of these zawiyas, and you would study the classic beginning forms of knowledge, including, say, grammar, the Quran, the Sira, these types of religious things. And as you proceeded in your studies, which could would go over a uh, maybe 10, 15 year period from the time, I mean, we're talking up. And so you'd be, you'd be, there is a kind of a sense of, of moving towards a graduation, although there's never really actually a graduation. There's simply accumulating a series of ijazas from different teachers over time. You would be able to specialize more in different ways, or as in with UC itself, maybe you'd study a little, you study with a specific scholar. That scholar is interested in a whole range of things. And then you might end up studying as he did, you would study the religious sciences, but you would also then study astronomy, for example, or you would study mathematics in different ways. You would study logic, you know, and, and so you would study medicine as well. Right. So that you would the, the institutionalized study was not that there was like a fixed university curriculum as we might have in the European Middle Ages with a quadrivium and a trivium and all of these kinds of things, but rather that there would be individual pathways into various forms of knowledge and that individual students would then choose to sit with and study with professors or teachers in this context whom they were interested in. And I include one anecdote about in not related to one of the Sufi lodges, but to in, in Fez. Um, I think at the Karawayin, where a certain scholar, you know, he would teach what he was paid to teach for that morning. And then he would turn around after things were over and teach what he wanted to teach. And at that point, other students could come in and sit and be like, oh, yeah, I'm here for the after class study session, so to speak. And so that's going on is, as well. Um, so in that sense, we, from other anecdotal evidence, we get a sense that a lot of the of the teaching and the studying happened relatively early in the morning and then later in the afternoon, and there's a break in the middle of the day, especially in the Zawaya and Sufi lodges. That it's not clear, but I'm I assume that many of the students would then go off and do other types of work during that time period, like the actual work that's needed to sustain the lodge, for example. Um, but unfortunately, the number of anecdotes where you get these snapshots of social reality are relatively few and far between. So yeah, that, that's what it what it, it comes down to um, in terms of 
in terms of a, a quote-unquote curriculum. I mean, much has been made of the fact that this is not perhaps as institutionalized or systematic as other forms of curriculum that one might find, because one always gets drawn back to European universities as kind of the norm, the base here. But what we see in terms of what we don't have in Europe, what we do have in the Muslim world, my Europeanist colleagues always get a little bit um, nonplussed when I ask them. I'm like, don't you guys have collections of biographical information on every single scholar who lived during a certain time period? I mean, isn't that the And they're like, what are you talking about? I'm like, but that's that's what we have here. I actually have social information on every single person for like the entire 17th century. If I cross if I, you know, cross reference all these different regional versions, I mean, not every single person, but I'm capturing so much more. They have nothing to go to. And, and so in, in that sense, we can use that information to establish, you know, kind of, I don't want to say the word quantitative, but I do because it has such a social authority, kind of quantitative estimates of how many people were invested in and studied these sciences. But the pathways in which they would have studied the natural sciences, however, um, would have been a little bit more informal and based on this interest of the individual students in which teachers were available to them at these institutions of learning. But what we do see is that they traveled they would move around. So they would study. If they couldn't find a teacher in one place, they would go somewhere else. So it's not just Al-Yusi, it's many of the other people um, who move between different parts of Morocco and who study both spiritually with different spiritual instructors, but also other subjects in different places. And that Morocco felt that it had such a density of knowledge during this time period that some of the people I talk about never even leave the Sous. That is to say, they never really move north of the Alice. And they're able to say, okay, well, I studied with these people in, in Tarundan to Mohammedia. Then I went to Sijil Masa. Then I went over here to Tamgurut. Then I went here and I found everything I needed. You know, I never, never had to go to Fez, much less, you know, go off to Cairo or somewhere else. And I mean, just to perhaps a, a brief reminder that this is happening during the same time period that Morocco is becoming intellectually closely linked with West Africa, with Timbuktu, with these, because of the imperialist sort of ambitions of Ahmed al-Mansur and the Saadis. So Al-Yusi grows up, is born just a few years, well, two decades after, say, Ahmed Baba Timbukti is released from house arrest and gets to return back to, to Timbuktu. And he leaves behind him a legacy of Moroccan scholars and students who had studied with him. And so Al-Yusi is also in, in this entire environment. They're getting knowledge in general, not just from, it's not just coming from the East, it's also coming from the South. It's also coming from the centers of learning in, in, in the Western Sahara that is moving North. So that from the Moroccan perspective of this time, you don't really need the rest of the Islamicate world. I mean, it's nice. Sure, you go on Hajj, you go to Mecca and Medina, you meet people, you come back, you tell great stories about it, you go to Egypt. But it, you, there's no, it's like, it's not, nobody's like, you have to go to Egypt, you have to go to the Levant, you have to go to the Hejaz. No, you're perfectly at home with what's going on in Morocco itself. I mean, I think it's interesting, you know, just thinking about the kind of shift that happens with the language of science, right? Because you mentioned in the introduction that where Arabic was the language of science in the 17th century in this moment that you're talking about, when you kind of like do the zooming out to talk about the accessibility of archives, you then say how more people are, are 
uh, more inclined to kind of interact with scholars of scholars of and from Morocco who write in French rather than Arabic. So it's also interesting to see kind of how what once allowed these works to travel on a, a different kind of non-Western centered global scale to to actually um, is part of kind of the impetus of writing the book now because they don't travel like that anymore. No, absolutely. I think something that I've really tried to come to terms with and which I'm afraid is only really addressed in an abbreviated form in this book is how knowledge shifts between the 19th and the 20th century and what the comparatively short period of French colonization of Morocco and Spanish colonization of Morocco, comparatively compared to, say, Algeria, um, does to both language and understanding of what is considered to be knowledge and what is considered to be desirable knowledge. And, and so that's, I go over that briefly in the introduction, but the, I mean, short stories that Arabic had been a prestige, not language in the 19th century in Morocco, in the sense that you could go to a institution of learning, say the Qarawiyin in Fez, you could, if you graduated from the Qarawiyin, you would get a job, you would go and work in kind of the state bureaucracy, so if you will, if you didn't go into simply be also becoming a religious scholar. After French colonialism, that's gone. They, the the, the Karawiyin uh, curriculum, which had previously had contained the natural sciences, is now turned into a vision of Islam that the French understand and that those natural sciences fall out. And then after independence, they stay out because the version understanding the curriculum that had been the colonial curriculum. I mean, this is a, a pretty common phenomenon in taking a look at the effect of, of how post-colonial states draw upon the, the ways in which the colonial period had imagined both Islam and other forms of knowledge. That carries on after that into the post-colonial period, except then, of course, Arabic has disappeared. French has come in. And now if you go to the institutions previously, um, which had been so uh, prestigious, these religious institutions, they no longer give you a job. They no longer give you an employment. They're not a place where you have access to the kind of uh, social mobility that that had previously imagined. And, and of course, the other thing is that the Zawaya, the Zawiyas, which in which I focus on so much for the 17th century, had by the late 19th century had lost this kind of intellectual role which they had had in this early period. So one of the things we're seeing here is that there really is a a moment in the 17th century where the intellectual infrastructure which is set up under the Saadis in the 16th is carrying through in the 17th and then in the 18th which I I kind of stopped the book at the end of the 17th beginning of the 18th but in the 18th century and moving into the 19th that rural intellectual infrastructure begins to collapse and to fall apart. Um, and so while I did go, for example, as one of the only sort of, um, uh, I'm not going to say anthropological, one of the more interesting moments in doing research for the book to the Ayeshia Hamziya Zawiya up in the High Atlas. And if you go there today, and that's where they still keep the manuscripts, it's only beginning to be incorporated into the the Al-Qaf, the Ministry of the Al-Qaf. If you go there in, and then you, you will still meet a, a descendant of the the family of the hum, who founded this zawiya in the 17th century as a as a kind of a, a spin-off of the Dile zawiya in the middle atlas and now they they're herders i mean their their livelihood comes from goats and sheep and herding that and they don't have a link to the direct to the intellectual that that infrastructure is no longer is no longer socially prestigious enough and does not come with the economic basis that it had in previous centuries and so that's now 
marginalized. And that also leads to, I think, within Morocco itself, a neglect over um, for these rural areas. So I guess, and that's another aspect which I'll, I'll just briefly riff on, which is to say that this genealogy of decline, this, this understanding that the Islamic world has in the 17th, 18th, and 19th centuries gone into a period of, of intellectual decline in which the natural sciences, and among other forms of knowledge, are no longer as institutionally supported or socially supported, that narrative, which I try to correct in this book, is not only found in kind of Western Orientalist scholarship, but is comes out of this joint narrative that emerges in the 20th century. And you find it also then taken up in uh, reformers or Salafi narratives, both outside of, of Morocco, but also within Morocco and among the kind of nationalist voices that argue for you know, the post-colonial nation state, which then arises. So that's important to get that complexity in there to understand why it is that you'll find many people in the Islamicate world today who are very attracted to the very type of scientific modernity that obfuscates or does not allow us to see the kind of rich intellectual engagement that we're getting here, for example, in 17th century Morocco, where the occult sciences and the natural sciences and the, re and the so-called religious sciences are not differentiated in hard and fast ways, but interact with each other in very productive, complicated ways, as we see in, in my, my discussion of Al-Meriti's work, uh, one of Al-Yusi's teachers. In the second half of the podcast, we get into a methodological discussion with Justin about the history of science and hear some more wonderful stories from his book, Revealed Sciences, including the construction of an unusual astrolabe. How do we tell stories of science and intellectual engagement with the natural world that do not have an endpoint in the contemporary? Throughout his book, Justin wrote reflections on methodology called excurses. The excurses address the careful ways he approached this topic, avoiding the pitfalls of modern categories, and the limitations of scholarly norms. There's a reason that the type of history that I'm telling here has not attracted too much attention before, and that's because disciplinarily, we have an obsession with connections and crossings and cross-pollinations and whatever we want to call it. And that leads us to neglect certain times, types of local history. So some of the most remarkable scholarship on Morocco in the 17th century has dealt with, for example, some amazing social phenomena. Say, look, the Moriscos have arrived in North Africa. This is amazing. These people are being, this is like the largest mass um, 
deportation at the early modern period is 300,000 people get kicked out of Spain in the early 17th century and they show up in North Africa. And, and so there's a lot of fun stuff to write about this. This is, this is really fascinating stuff. Um, but then you get focused on this connection and then you want to know what's going on with the connection. Oh, look, we have pirate states and, and Saleh and otherwise. We have these people who come over, then they become pirates and they... I mean, pirates! Who can compete with pirates? Pirates are amazing. Um, so, but all of that has led us to neglecting the, the you know, one of the striking things for me, again, I, I, I go back to Al-Yusi, but not just him, Al-Meriti and so many of these other people is they're not interested in the pirates. They're not interested. They don't never mention Europeans. They never mention the Spanish. They're like, mm-hmm. yeah, maybe there's mm-hmm. a jihad somewhere. I mean, it's not a focus. What they're interested in is their networks, their Sufi lodges, the networks of, of, of studying and, and of transmission that are going on internally. And, and so part of the book is also trying to recover that for giving us an appreciation. And you only get that with these detailed local micro histories. Um, and, and, and we've just haven't had enough of those is my, is my feeling. I feel like the focus on on connection, on travel, on go-betweens. I mean, this is something I think, we've had probably each of us has had so many conversations about with others in history of science that it's a fetishization of what moves yeah. over what doesn't. Yeah. And yeah. Um, I, I like part of why I asked the question about language earlier is because um, some of the, some of the great and interesting stories to tell um, are about the kinds of texts that would not be legible outside of mm-hmm. a certain context and the communities who would use them and indeed like they are not fully legible to us now like the remove of space as well as the remove of time you know bounds them like um i really just agree with what you're saying about the importance of attending closely to what doesn't move and what doesn't circulate or what circulates as taylor was gesturing to this earlier what circulates in a, a bounded way um that may or may not include europe (laughs) <laughs> exactly 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 and and because as i was reading the book i was thinking a lot of of like the work in history of science on agnotology um and thinking about like histories of failure right and and this idea that because something moves that makes it important um and so i really do appreciate you like putting in context the the importance of of what it means for intellectual history um, and history of science to to follow something that might move in unexpected ways um, or not move at all, right? Um, or move in trajectories that we can only understand through a kind of hyper uh, local or like a, a, a super situated understanding of what's going on on the ground locally. It's always a, there are pretty salutary motives to why we were focused on things that move or why we do. And part of it is to, to understand, you know, the, the general historiographical shift to say that modern science doesn't come about within Europe. It comes about as an interaction of European countries with these other places. We have to understand these other actors. And that then leads us into this constellation of, well, let's track movement. Let's look at what's going on in the colony and how it affects the metropole and vice versa and all of these things. And part of, in which I understand, I think that that's, that's an understandable and a, and a very positive historiographical shift but the people whom i'm interested in in the, this book their their understandings of of science 
generally don't do too well by the time we reach modernity. That is to say, the types of knowledge that they're pursuing no longer get grafted onto that sort of teleology which leads you to modern science. They end up in places that we would now that people would call pseudoscience or when you think about, again, the occult, right? And that then means that you're telling another story genealogically. And that's where I, I did find the local that you're talking about to be useful. But I, I, I just wanted to stress those broader tensions because one of the main things the book really wrestles with, and I'm still not happy with this necessarily, is how do we tell stories of science and intellectual engagement with the natural world that do not have an endpoint in the contemporary? And, and that's, that's where the local brought me back to the local. I think it's very powerful that you start the book off saying like the book is going to begin with an untelling of a story so that I can tell the story that I want to tell. Um, and part of me wonders how you think, I guess, the book could have been approached differently if you didn't feel like you had to respond to these very strong narratives of 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 what history of science is supposed to look like. These narratives are so deeply entrenched that to, to just prove that the, the work that you want to do is important, you have to like move, like kind of clear the, the ground um, to situate these scholars. Um, and so maybe if you could just talk more about that process or like what does it mean to have to tell a story through the untelling of another? I think I was trying to be as clear as possible to the reader, but first and foremost to myself about what happens when we start to tell any story about science or basically about anything but this this comes a great deal out of teaching of, of walking into a classroom and trying to say and now I'm going to explain to these kids who whether they realize it or not I feel or part have imbibed the gospel of science that we I mean to to use Marwara Shekri's term to imbibe the go, the gospel of science that has come with modernity where we treat this as a prestige form of knowledge and and, and it's it's very prominent I mean in the UAE where I live it the the government prides itself on its ability to send satellites to Mars and, and modern you know all of these things it's in it and it makes and it has a narrative here as it does elsewhere of these forms of knowledge being having an Islamic origin or coming from the Islamic world or, you know, this is where the, I, I briefly engaged in the preface with a thousand and one inventions of, in terms of seeing why, where these narratives are and where they come from. And, and so you, to think through, and this always goes back to what would it be like to be sitting in the 17th century and studying astronomy or studying astrology or practicing letterism in Morocco? How do I make that world approachable? How do I make that world understandable? Well, first, I'm going to have to get rid of all of the the, the kind of the surface noise that we have um, and the surface noise, which is built into uh, all of the modern forms like Neil deGrasse Tyson on Cosmos or Stephen Weinberg writing his, his you know, a, a kind of a triumphalist understanding teleology of modern science. And that's, you know, just thinking through that. Let's see what happens if I push that away and try to go back to first principles. And then we have to, and that's where the excursi or the excursuses came from in the book is this, this moment where I kind of want to turn to the reader and say, look, there are some basic things here that we kind of have to address and to articulate so that we can move on into these more precise parts. And so I'm trying to figure out, I mean, how to do this because it's hard. It's really hard to untell stories that we all inherently believe in. And so it's funny, you ask me like, what would it have been like if I hadn't felt I had to do that? 
And I can't, I mean, this is a failure of imagination on my part. I can't really imagine it. I don't know what that would be like because it would be living in a different world. But in the end, I then invoke Thomas Kuhn's structure of scientific revolutions to find something, to find some kind of template. And so in the Darwinian tree of life metaphor, which he uses in that, um, that's what I come back to. That's, that's the thing that, that I can say is that, look, the scientific knowledge makes its way out there. It, it goes out and it, it, uh, it can develop in different ways which are non-teleological. And this is what we're looking at here in the 17th century in Morocco. You know, in addition to to situating these scholars within a larger intellectual trajectory in Morocco, you also very creatively choose passages that give us insight into textures on the ground, whether it's scholars studying together um, outside of mosques or, you know, actually the kinds of um, objects they might make with the knowledge of the natural sciences that they learn. Um, and an actually very interesting object that we that we would like to hear more about is Al-Rudani's uh, paper mache astrolabe. So Al-Rudani is this scholar from the south of Morocco who then ends up at, at a certain point in his life after studying um, with Meriti, the same Scott teacher of Al-Yusi. So these guys all know each other. He then leaves and travels to um, Mecca and to the Hejaz and settles uh, there and stays there the rest of his life. Um, but he is visited by a traveler, Alayeshi, who was also studied at the Dela Zawiya in the Middle Atlas and who then went off and founded his own Zawiya in the High Atlas, which became known as the Ayashiya Hamsawiya Zawiya or Lodge. And he, while on, on Hajj in the East, meets up again with, or meets actually for the first time, Rudani, and finds that he is in his, that he's a very spiritual man, does not go out very much, but that in his spare time, in order to sustain himself and to make a living, one of the things he does is to use his knowledge of astronomy and is to produce these objects. And he produces these astrolabes, which he then, he sells, right? And so he... Uh, Ayeshi then, this Moroccan traveler, describes the, the astrolabe as, as follows. I was told that he took paper, placed it into water until it dissolved and became like paste. He then placed gum arabic in water until it dissolved and mixed it well with the dissolved paper. One then takes a sphere and endeavors to wrap it so that all parts are equally covered in relation to the center so that if you placed it on a smooth surface, it would stop at a single point. I was told that it kept breaking for him until he took a nail and placed it in its center and then took half of a brass circle, both sides of which were pierced and placed both sides on the ends of the nail that extended beyond the sphere's two sides. He then began to go around the half of the mentioned circle with the paste until there were no more protrusions. The indentions were filled, indentations were filled, and it became a perfect circle. He then painted its surface white, wrote on it what needed to be written, and brushed over the writing with lacquer. Because of this, the writing would not be erased, even if it became wet from the hand's sweat or some other source. The sphere above it is made in the same fashion, save that it is pierced while still wet. I love that description. I honestly don't know what that object is going to look like that he's describing, because <laughs> I find it quite complicated. So when you go and check out the picture, it 
I still struggle, but I have a much better understanding of what's going on. Because here you have the spherical astrolabe, and it has a holder, which I think is what he's describing, which envelops it and which can be used in a certain way. And so that's, this is, this is um, you know, as I said, uh, my gratitude to, to Professor David King for, for that reference and also telling me, pointing out that it's a, a universal astrolabe that's being depicted and not a spherical astrolabe. So there's there's some still some questions to be answered there. But the fact that we have this 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 description of this Moroccan who had made his way east and who was then visited by this other um, scholar and who takes us all down is uh, is wonderful. Mm -hmm. Now Rudani is interesting for another reason, which is that he again exemplifies a type of scholar who could be well known for his hadith criticism and his religious scholarship as well as his work on astronomy, for example. So we see that these are not two separate worlds, but that even people like Meriti as well, who writes these works of alchemy or has this long treatise, which did not make it into the book, but on refuting sorcery, the Iptal al-Sahr, um, that he also writes works on, on sort of prophetic, um, on the Shahada and on theology and other things. So there, people are moving in and out of these, of these various forms of knowledge, which as we remember, all you see all called revealed. that if we pull on it, we'll discover that in many ways, I'm, I'm not a historian of science in that sense, which is kind of bizarre to say because the field is relatively small. And so anybody who wants to play in the sandbox kind of gets in um, because it's so small. But I, I come from a background as an intellectual historian. And, and in that sense, that's how I approach thinking about the plague and about medicine. And then when I turned to this broader book and started to look at these issues, I was really coming at it from the perspective of intellectual history and not from the perspective of somebody who said, who say had really good technical understanding of astronomy or, or astrology or any of the the occult or non-occult uh, natural sciences. And I think that is something I, I try to address in the book, but it also says something about the different approaches that people are taking to the field, all of which are complementary and which need to, to be there. Um, I think you end up speaking on a bunch of multiple different levels about the history of science in the book. Um, and so if you could maybe tell us more about that process, what you think being an intellectual historian actually brought to your understanding of the history of science um, and your ability to kind of really tell this complex and multi-layered story that is at once historiographical, but also like very historical, very gritty um, and in the sources. Yeah, I, th I think it comes out of out of two things. The first thing, of course, and, and I, you know, is that when you talk about science, you're never talking just about science. You're talking about a lot of other things. But science is such a, a form of a prestige form of knowledge in modern culture that you're always setting up certain civilizational cultural claims when you bring in the word science. Right. We all know this, unfortunately, almost too well. And so. That's something that had become, I did not know that until I wrote the book on plague and started thinking about, oh, I see, where now we're using how people respond to plague as an index of how, quote unquote, civilized, rational, modern they are, right? So that's interesting. What if we broaden that and take a look at the more broad, just natural sciences in general? And that's what dragged me into early modern Morocco. Um, and then in the process, you first you run into the fact that well, actually we don't we don't know anything. 
how would we write such a history if we actually knew things? We're going to have to start really small. We need, you know, in a Germanic sense, I have this sort of almost Borgesian fantasy of getting like hundreds of graduate students and saying, okay, you get Morocco between 1600 and 1620. You get it between 1620 and 1640. And just going through the entire Islamic world like that, everybody gets like a 20 year period and doing this thick description of the whole thing. I mean, that's the kind of multi-generational hundred year thing that only somebody in, in kind of the German Academy where they do these you know, dictionaries that take like a half century to complete. That's what we would need in, in some ways to do that. But since that's not going to happen, at least we can stop. We can take a look at a narrow period or comparatively narrow. Right. And and then do go down and try to build up like what are the actual uh, institutions of learning? Where is in many ways what what are the intellectual trajectories? How do we tell you? Know? And then you start running into all of these other things. And that's what I started getting really interested in because I've been thinking about the relationship between so-called science and religion for a long time. I teach classes about it. And then you're like, well, what is religion? I mean, you can, all these basic yep. questions start coming in and say, well, now I have to explain what, you know, what is religion? You know, Sufism? Is it theology is it law what what is it and then and then so that's a big a big part of the process a big part of the process of writing this book was just really coming to terms with and thinking about how we really don't know anything and that's how i say at the at the end of the book just to anticipate the ending that the book fails the book fails in numerous ways mm -hmm. and it fails and and the part where i don't have to be hard on myself is when i say that it fails because of the immaturity of the field Right. Because the field just is not ready yet to make certain claims that it would like to make. And when we do make those claims, we always overpromise and we make these broad generalizations and we fall flat in our faces. So we have to kind of take the step of humility and move back and then move forward very slowly. But we don't like to do that in the academy because big claims sound so much cooler. So that's that's so that's the problem. And so as an intellectual historian, those were the kinds of, of things that I was wrestling with in the book. First of all, right. You know, why where does this this narrative of, quote unquote, decline come from? And then how can we confront it with something more complicated and complex? And that's the that's the part of the failure of the book where that might be on me. That is to say that I think it's really hard to articulate that alternative narrative to decline. Right. And I think that's something our field in general is still struggling with. We all agree that decline narrative is awful. It doesn't make any sense. It's based on all of these Eurocentric problems and all of that. We're much less effective in creating an elevator type soundbite version of it that we can present to people, say, doing Latin American history or Chinese history and say, no, no, not decline this and then show them this other thing. And I'm still the book in some ways is my attempt at struggling to do that is in in. Obviously, it would not fit into an elevator speech. As you say in one of the excursies, like there's something really powerful about the narrative of like the triumph of science and the great man, and it's very hard to replace that narrative <laughs> with something equally compelling. Um, especially when we're like, well, science is multi-sided. There's no one one timeline. Um, but I I just wanted to say like before we move on to more specific questions that I think it's successful in a number of ways. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I was going to say, I actually think that it succeeds. Um, and it's actually, you know, thinking about esoterics as method, actually, in this kind of return to the idea that there is always something uh, to be known and things cannot always be fully known. There's always gonna be constant rounds of questioning and inquiry, right? And um, 
And so, and that's why, again, I think you do a good job of bringing that into the writing of history and specifically into the writing of history of science, which can be so deterministic, um, which can be done in very kind of like boring, but also pedantic fashion, right? In, in returning this kind of like level of curiosity and inquiry around not just the text themselves, but the structure or, or I guess what you call like the political economy of archival accessibility and also just like scholarly attention that either allows for or does not allow for um, them to be a part of these larger conversations. I think like that's actually quite successful and more of what we need personally. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. I'm glad that that came through. I mean, as I set out in the introduction, there are these three scholars whose body of work has kind of pushed me, you know, into thinking about these things. And it's really, I think, with, um, you know, both the magisterial book of Khaled al-Ruayheb, when he's really kind of laying out a way of thinking about looking at intellectual history as a change of giving us a grammar of a roadmap of how to think about changing shifts during the early modern period is enormously helpful as a touch point. But also here, and maybe in response to what you just said, Taylor, uh, Sonia Brentius is saying, wait a second, it's not just the great men and the great texts that are interesting. You know, let's take a look at the diffusion of material throughout society and to start thinking about these texts in a way which I feel we've already been doing with the natural sciences and say early modern English history for a long time, you know, I mean, and trying and, and then but then saying so when we look at the, the Middle East, when we look at the Islamicate world and we're now need to be able to to give ourselves the license and also yeah, the license to go in and to tell the types of histories which don't necessarily live up to the historiographical demands of our own field, but also other fields. And I guess that's what I was trying to work through in the, the introduction is to explain a little bit about how we gotten into this situation where we are at the moment, where we place different demands upon ourselves as historians than our Europeanist colleagues. Like, it would be my dream to get this book translated into Arabic. And I think this is actually a relatively achievable dream. And then to, and to bring it back to Morocco. Because I've spoken about it now with Morocco. Too. I've spoken about it in, in on a Moroccan kind of lecture series with other historians of Morocco. Moroccans are not going to generally read English language scholarship. They're Francophone. They'll focus on that. And then they'll also focus on, on what's written in Arabic. Whereas... As you know, most of us in, in, in the, our field, we tend to treat Arabic as the language of primary materials and not secondary materials. So we don't spend a lot of time reading secondary sources in Arabic, at least my generation. Maybe things are better in, the, in your generation in terms of that, that issue. But so what for this book, I, I ended up trying to sink into as much secondary material written by Moroccan scholars as I could precisely for that reason. And I discovered that there's a huge amount of material there albeit still framed in this certain kind of declensionist narrative that they share with the kind of French Orientalists of the middle 20th century.
And if you're interested in just that sort of scholarship, Justin has kindly shared several titles with us in his bibliography, along with all of the other references in this episode. You can check that out at our website, www.ottomanhistorypodcast.com. Thank you for listening.